Father Roderick, podcasting from the heart of the Netherlands, the beautiful city of Amersfoort, on a beautiful Tuesday morning for a change. The sun is shining, the skies are blue, the temperatures are low though, but not as bad as it was last week. Welcome to the show. And this episode is brought to you thanks to my patrons over at patreon.com slash fatherroderick. It's a small but very faithful and very enthusiastic community of people that support me and help me finance my projects. And if you want to join them and get access to my weekly uh, exclusive extra podcast for that patron community, go over to patreon.com slash Father Roderick. Thanks so much for your support if you are already are a patron. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. What a week we have behind us. Uh, last week, we launched the new Dutch channel that I talked about in earlier episodes. Uh, it's called Catholic Today. It is a, a new channel for Dutch-speaking people. So it's both in the Netherlands, but also in Flanders, which is uh, the northern part of Belgium, as well as some overseas countries where they speak Dutch. Um, and the aim of that channel is to help bring you know, this, this big Catholic community together. Um, and when I say big, I mean big because they don't always go to church, but they may be Catholic from birth or by, you know, a tradition or family tradition. Um, but we want to reach out to them and bring them into a community, especially those that feel a little bit alone now that sometimes the church in their village has closed or the parish is growing bigger, but there are less priests. And so they, they kind of lose contact. And I think that as I've proven for many, many years with podcasting and other forms of social media, uh, that it is possible to to not entirely compensate, of course, for a community, a real community around a parish, um, but it is possible to help people find, re rediscover the value of community. Uh, because a lot of people will say, well, I still believe, uh, I st I'm, I'm still spiritual, <laughs> but uh, you cannot really be a Catholic or a Christian on your own. You, you, that community is uh, not only something that can enrich your life, but it's also, some, it's also a community of people that need you to contribute. And I think social media are a perfect venue to re-strengthen the bonds between those followers. So it's, a, it's slightly different from other channels and projects that we've done in the past, like, for instance, what we do with this podcast and with uh, uh, Tridio International, where we all going even beyond the confines of the Catholic community. But it's something that is absolutely necessary here in my country where there's almost no Catholic press anymore, no Catholic media. Um, in, in, in Belgium, it's slightly better, but it's also uh, on, on a decline. And so we, we launched this channel. We did it um, with two shows. One is a weekly uh, show about what's happening in the Vatican and uh, about Pope Francis or any successor of, of Pope Francis in the future, that is uh, information that never reaches our, our borders. It, it doesn't cross the Dutch border. The Dutch media never talk about the Vatican or about what Pope Francis says or does uh, unless there is a, a crisis or unless there is a scandal. And so... Um, it, that is for us something that we can add to the Catholic media landscape here in in our countries. Uh, the second thing uh, that I'm super excited about is is kind of like a like a video version of a podcast. It is it's we we baptized it a talk show, although of course it's not made in the same way and with the same resources as you know talk shows that you you would see on television. But I don't think it's impossible to get there in the future. But what I wanted to do is to go to the parishes. So instead of recording everything in a studio uh, at home, to go where where the Catholics of today live. Um, and that not necessarily a church, by the way. Our first episode was filmed in a church. But it could also be next week or this week, actually. We're going to film it, um, if everything goes well, in a in a bar, in a cafe. And, and it's one of the bars opposite of the cathedral in the city of, of Den Bosch. So um, still is a, a bit of a geographical vicinity to, to a big church. But we want to be where the people are. 
and we want to uh, meet people where they are and tell the stories, the local stories of the things that can inspire other Catholics in, in my country. Um, so we want to hear from parishes uh, of, of projects that are successful, of things that have inspired people that you know we could we can learn from. Um, so this upcoming episode, we're going to talk w- about uh, w- um, this um, book, and you may have heard of it. It's called Rebuild. It's about parish renewal, and it, it's been a quite a successful uh, book. It's written by a, people, a, a number of people that work in a parish. That they kind of rebuilt from the ground up and from the perspective of, you know, what are we? Why aren't people coming anymore? And that helped, that actually gave them an incentive to go back to the roots of what are we actually? And what do we want? What is our purpose? And then they, they kind of formulate their, their ultimate mission is to form followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, just like in the very beginning of the church. And that has been a complete kind of reversal of, of their entire approach to things. So the church is not just a place where people spend their time, you know, doing organizing barbecues or <laughs> it is it is all about community, uh, but it's not just a community, it's a community of followers of Christ. And so whatever you do in a parish should have as its ultimate goal to help people be followers of Christ, to be disciples, to learn from Christ. And Christ is the center, it's the personal center of the parish. That book has been translated and we'll have the person who translated or helped translate the book um, on our show. That is a story that you'd probably not see on television or hear on the radio. We can tell that story thanks to the new channel. Now, as usual, when you launch new things, and I know this from my long experience with podcasting, and in the past we have done so many new things and we we try to do streaming and, and, and vlogging and whatnot. Whenever you start something that you're excited about, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And that is exactly what happened. To to put the, the Pope video together was a massive headache um, because it turned out to be very complicated. We, we have a, a, a new presenter. I'm, by the way, not the face of this new channel. We have a new uh, member of our team, uh, Mario Leine, and uh, she is the f- Let's say for now, the the face of the of the channel. We hope to introduce even more new people that can that that, that our audience can relate to. Um, and I deliberately didn't want to be myself the the person to do that, even though I'm I'm in the Netherlands, uh, quite n- known for the for my television show. But I want to broaden that. It's not just about me. This is about the Catholic community, and there are so many new talents there. Um, so she is uh, she's the host of both the the, the Pope video and uh, the, um, the the talk show. But it was her very first time in front of the camera last Thursday. So she had to read from uh, from a teleprompter, which is uh, that's a, an art in itself. That's pretty hard if you've never done that before. But she did very very well, and the talk show also just we threw her into the deep. It was literally just go for it. And, uh, and and she's natural and did it very, very well. But during the talk show, we had the problem that we wanted to stream it live, like I'm streaming this live on Facebook every week. So I, I figured how, how hard can it be? We can just make a, uh, a personal hotspot on my phone. Uh, you know, I've got 4G on my phone. I've got a very big data bundle. So, but then we heard that, well, there's actually Wi-Fi in the church. So we were super excited. It was like, and they wanted, they invited us. This is a neighboring parish, to to film the entire thing in the church near the baptismal font. The reason had a very pragmatic reason that one of their choirs was using the other uh, big room that was available. Um, so we we couldn't go there. And then they thought it could be a good idea since we're basically baptizing our new channel that day. Let's go and sit in front of, uh, near near the baptismal font. So, yes, there was Wi-Fi, and it was a strong signal. So I was like, okay, we've got five more minutes, and then we're going live. We were using very simple means, just a webcam and some LED lights and a simple table that they provided us with. So super, super low budget, very modest means because, well, that's the reality. We don't have any funds. We don't have any sponsors. Um, so we're, but we're, we're doing what we can with the means that we have. So the moment we go live, I press 
you know, send and just like I do with my podcast every week. And then after a minute, the entire screen goes dark and it's like, um, internet connection, not stable enough or not fast enough for further broadcast. And so I try again. It's like, what, what's going on? Okay. Perhaps a little hiccup. Try again after a minute. End of story. And then it turns out, so I ask, well, actually what, what I decided there and then was, okay, we'll do the semi-live. So we'll, we'll continue to talk show. The guests are there. We have everything in place. But instead of broadcasting it live on Facebook, we'll just lo record it locally with Ecamm on, on, on my little MacBook Air, uh, tiny little old computer <laughs> that I used to write, Geek Priest, actually. So it's like seven years old. But anyway, since we were recording locally, uh, it's a very low quality, low resolution recording, but at least we would have something. Um, and then afterwards, I asked the people of the parish, but you told me that there would be Wi-Fi. And they said, yeah, well, yes, actually, we have Wi-Fi, but the router is uh, like 15 years old. <laughs> it turns out they have a very, very slow router. They have fiber even in the parish, but then there is this little bottleneck of this super old, and probably like in every parish, like, well, it still works. So why would we, why would we buy a new one? Not thinking of the fact that actually these old routers are also operating on super low speed. So you're actually bringing down like a super fast internet connection to, you know, basically telephone modem speeds. Um, I, I tried one more thing and it's like, well, I have 4, 4G on my iPhone, so I'm going to set up a personal hotspot. Apple makes that really easy. And then I'll connect my, my laptop to my my local internet, my local Wi-Fi network. And then I, I try that and then it, it doesn't even start because what turns out that the walls of the church, this is an old, beautiful church, almost looks like a cathedral. The walls are so thick that I can't get a 4G signal. I only get a very, very limited 3G signal that is only like two bars and clearly not fast enough to do live streaming in... in uh, in HD, well, in 720p. So big, big failure. And then the local newspaper puts that on their front page, like first talk show of Father Roderick fails because of thick church walls. And then we, the funny thing is we get a lot of support from people and a lot of recommendations. People are trying to help out and they're making fun of the situation, of course. Uh, but they're also saying, well, you know, don't, don't worry too much about it. Um, it is uh, perhaps a sign of God that instead of being staying inside of a church, you need to go out. You need to go into the world. I was like, yeah, that actually, I like that exegesis. That is a very good uh, way of, of putting it. What I then did, I took the recording of the show and I um, uh, did a, a, a post-edit. So I added... Uh, I kind of cut it down a little bit. We added a, a film segment. There's a permanent deacon and his wife. Uh, they're big movie fans. And they, they go to the movies like five times a week and review every movie on Instagram. So I took those videos, and with their permission, of course, and did a little interlude, like a break segment about movies. And then we, uh, we added that to the in-between the two guests. We learned a ton of things doing this. Also about the dynamics of a, of a talk show. So for instance, we had two guests. Uh, we wanted to do a show of about 25 minutes. And then with like a five-minute break of a movie segment, you still have 10 minutes per guest. And I heard from not everyone, but I heard from a number of people, they said it's a bit too long. 10 minutes of talking is too long, especially if you don't have any visual material. Uh, so we talked about World Youth Day. The our first guest uh, was one of the young people that in, in Rio, Rio de Janeiro, when Pope Francis had his first World Youth Day, was uh, spoke to the Pope um, on behalf of all the European uh, uh, youth. And so we, we brought her back. She now has a family. So she, she, she talked about her experience back then. And I have fortunately had some footage of that time years ago when she was speaking to Pope Francis. For the second interview, which was an interview about uh, a successful teenage group, a teenage church group in that local parish, um, I had no photos, I had no film, and then it, it, it almost becomes radio with, you know, moving images. So that was one of the things that I learned um, 
we probably need to reduce the duration of those segments and perhaps add an, another break, another segment, or a third guest and keep them at five, six minutes. would have the additional advantage of being able to isolate those interviews and also post those um, separately, separate from, let's say, the entire show. Because, you know, for people on, on social media, I like to consume small content, you know, four or five minutes max. So that would be an added advantage. And so we're learning. Another thing that, another thing that, I, that I discovered was that the, the biggest problem is not the video, but it's the audio. How do you record audio when you have three people and you only have one, wire, uh, one wireless microphone? And I had the table microphone that I used to use for my podcast, and I put that on the table. But then people are not used to talking into a microphone like I right, do right now. I use closed mic technique, so my face is almost hugging the <laughs> the the microphone, so that you you don't have any echo. Um, and plus, it makes me sound closer to to the listener. Then we had these two guests, uh, and they were sitting back in their chair, so they were at least. Uh, a meter away from the microphone, so I had to do a lot of post processing to up the levels of the of the audio, and doesn't really yield a very good result. So that's another problem that we have to solve. And so I made a list of uh, a wish list of of equipment that we need, know how, uh, you know, improvements that we need. And in a way, I'm actually very proud that we pulled it off. Anyway, d- d- despite the fact that it was total crisis here on Thursday, and it was just so hectic and so difficult to pull it off. But we, we made it, and now we're in the process of refining. So we know how to make mac and cheese macaroni, but we kind of burnt half of it. So the next time, we still we already know the basic recipe. <laughs> we know the ingredients, but now we're going to refine. Instead of using the cheapest cheese that we can find, we'll add a little bit of Gruyere or other French cheese and make something a little bit more exquisite in haute cuisine. And over time... Perhaps we'll open our Michelin restaurant, you know, mac and cheese. <laughs> I don't know. Probably not the right metaphor, but you see what I mean. I'm, I, I kind of prefer just giving it a go and learning from our mistakes and, and, and involving also the audience in the process of growing and improving. Because if we need more equipment, if we need more people to help me with this, because I was doing this with Martin and Inge and Marjolaine, but we, we need... I'd rather be there to help with the content of the show instead of trying to fix problems and doing all the technical stuff. So uh, we, 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 we discovered that we, we actually need a, probably a, a car for this. I'm using my own personal car, which is a, 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 a what is it, 12-year-old car that one of my old parishioners gifted me uh, because he didn't, he didn't want to drive anymore. He was uh, insecure on the road. So he's like, well, you can take my car. That thing is old. It's small. Um, and so our equipment that we need for a live talk show like that doesn't fit in the, in the back of the car anymore. So that all of a sudden adds uh, financial concerns. Like, okay, oh, we need a car. Oh, that's that's a little bit more expensive than just a microphone, right? Or, or some LED lights. Well, we're going to ask our audience to help us with that. And and so for the fundraising, what we hope to do, or fundraising, what we hope is that people will become supporters, like monthly supporters, very similar to what, what we do with this podcast, you know, the, the patrons. Uh, it's a small group, and they uh, contribute with small amounts every month, some very big amounts. Uh, but all those small contributions help do great things, and that's what I hope, what, 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 what works so well with the podcast I hope to to replicate that for this Dutch channel. It's a challenge because, of course, our audience is perhaps le- less tech-savvy. We're, we're aiming for just regular Catholics. They go to church perhaps every week, perhaps only once a year. Um, and so their enthusiasm, their motivation to help, also financially, will have to come from the quality of our, of our, of our shows and from our... Uh, one of our our biggest challenges is to reach them to begin with to get the word out and so in a way the the story of our first show failing miserably because of the thick walls of the church was actually brought the the initiative to the attention of so many more people than if i had just had a press release like oh we're going to do a catholic talk show about catholic stuff in a catholic church well 
not a lot of people are going, not a lot of newspapers are going to publish that. Um, but this was kind of like the underdog story, and people like underdogs. So I'm happy to be an underdog for the time being. And with that, I think it is time for our first segment of the week, and that is our movies and TV segment. That's going to be a long segment. Well, a long segment. I want to take some time because I have just yesterday evening seen one of the most impressive movies of the last decade, including Star Wars. It's a totally different uh, movie. This is a, this is a classic movie, and it looks as if it was filmed. 30, 40 years ago, but with the quality of those days. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl, and that kid sees dead people, and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. The movie that I want to talk about is Roma. And it is now available on Netflix, I think internationally. You may have heard of that movie because of the tremendous amount of Oscar nominations that the movie got in very important categories, among others, best film, but also sound design, uh, cinematography, I even think. Um, and I will tell you in a minute why this is an, not only an instant classic, but one of the best movies of the last decade. Um but it may not necessarily a movie that you would enjoy. It's not for everyone, but from the point of view of movie making and movie making history, this is an epic movie. And I will give you my reasons in a minute. But first, I want to talk about a very exciting rumor that I read the other day about an upcoming biopic about none other than J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien, one of my favorite writers, created my favorite imaginary world of Middle-earth. And we have seen the first images of a movie that is going to be based on his life. And in case you don't know anything about Tolkien himself, his life as a writer is just as fascinating as the world that he created. And the movie will show how his stories emerge in the middle of the war and then uh, the way his friends influence him. I was great friends with, for instance, C.S. Lewis, also a great writer. Um, we don't know much about the story and which elements of his life the movie will portray, but they're, what they want to do is to be as faithful as possible to the overall uh, narrative of his life. So hopefully we'll get to see the circumstances under which he wrote and, and, and rewrote and rewrote again The Hobbit and later on The Lord of the Rings and all the other stories. But also his his personal story is, uh, I think, of, of great, great value. Um, the movie itself, let me get the, um, the story here on movieweb.com, is made uh, and also is starring Nicholas Hult, um, the movie was actually first announced in 2013, but they only started to film in 2017. The release date is very soon. It's on May the 10th. I assume, I hope worldwide, but maybe US only or UK only. I don't know. Um, and it is um, directed by a Finnish filmmaker, Dom Karukoski. Um, and it will tell the story of the author's formative years. Um, the, there is one of the pictures that Nicholas Holt, who is playing J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, that he shared on, I think on Instagram, is a, a photo where he stands in front of a desk with lots of Lord of the Rings sketches all over his desk and all over the walls. Because, of course, Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien not only wrote the stories, but he also drew images. I, he wasn't a very talented artist, but he all, always pictured, um, the, the the stories that he wrote, also because he told them initially to his children. And a lot of the pictures themselves have become kind of the foundations for all the artwork that was developed for the books and for the movies. Um, and so a lot of what we see in the movies is inspired, at least, by his drawings. <coughs> Tolkien's long-time lo uh, long love, Edit Bratt, is also featuring in a movie played by Lily Collins, and she's in two of the other photos. So check that out. I'm super excited. Um, the author himself is uh, has a role in Mad Max Fury Road, a movie that I don't care for that much. Other people love it. And X-Men. Um, 
So uh, check it out. Uh, there will be a link to the article on uh, uh, in the show notes on uh, on Tradio.com. And of course, it's uh, it's all over the interwebs. Then I want to talk briefly about the season two of uh, currently my favorite Star Trek series, and that is Star Trek Discovery. I apologize to my American listeners. If you don't have CBS All Access, then you'll have to wait for it to appear on, I don't know, Blu-ray or DVD. Um, but in the rest of the world, we can watch this on Netflix. And what a great second season. I, I liked the first season. Didn't love it. I mean, it was very innovative. It was Star Trek, as we've never seen Star Trek before, with a almost movie-like quality, both in acting, in cinematography, and special effects. The special effects are amazing. They did a lot of new things. It's much more groundbreaking than any other Star Trek series that we've seen before, including DS9. Um, And that, of course, didn't please everyone because people are creatures of habit. They want things to stay the same. And change is always kind of ruffling our feathers. And so there was also a lot of backlash against the new direction that Discovery took, but I'm kind of watching that series open-minded and it's like, let's see where they take it. Um, and I thought that the first season was really good. Uh, there were some things that I thought, you know, story-wise that I didn't care for that much. And the second season has just premiered. Uh, the first two episodes are now up on Netflix uh, as I'm recording this. And I have to say that this second season looks much more promising even than the first season. Um, we've don't have to do the whole character building anymore. We know these people. We, 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 we love the crew, or at least part of the crew. Some of the crew members are still waiting for their moment in the, in the spotlights. But what we also uh, now have is the introduction of a, 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 a or one, not just one, but, but several classic Star Trek characters, one of which is Captain Pike, the original captain of the Enterprise. Um, Captain Pike, who is only seen in like the pilot episode of the original series, he's brought back here. Um, we also know Pike, of course, from the uh, alternate universe, the the, the, the Kelvin timeline of J.J. Abrams. But here Pike is played uh, as a major character in this series. He takes, actually, I'm not spoiling anything, because this was all over the internet in the trailers. He takes control of the of the Star Trek Discovery. Discovery is the name of the of the uh, uh, starship in this in this series, and he's a very good captain. It's like a classic captain. He even looks like a captain that could be straight from the '60s, from like this kind of swashbuckling. He's got this this old vibe about him. Not that he's old, but he's got this old fashioned classic Star Trek vibe, and that that is something that we were. I was still waiting for in the series. The, this new uh, second season also introduces Spock. I haven't seen him yet in these first two episodes. They're, they're taking their time to introduce Spock. And it's, of course, going to be very, very interesting to see how they will retrofit Spock in this series, in the timeline, because, well, he's related to the main character, or at least partially related, uh, of the show. And um, so Michael is uh, one of the officers on on uh, Star Trek Dis- uh, on the Starship uh, Discovery, um, and we we learn already in the first season that she was brought up in a Vulcan environment by Spock's parents, and now we get to see Spock. So, but Spock in the in the existing series never talks about having a half sister or an adopted sister, so. How is this going to work? They got me intrigued right from the get-go. I have to say this second season looks even more stunning than the first season. This is movie-quality special effects, even sometimes looking better than the J.J. Abrams movies. Unbelievable what what they did. The acting is really great. They have improved some of the characters i think the less screen time for some more more screen time more more better writing better dialogue for some of the others and um and it's working i i was laughing i was like on the edge of my seat all the time there was one element of this second uh, of the second episode of this second season that also intrigued me <clears throat> and that is very briefly without giving away too much they land on a planet where they find a small community that seems to be originally from Earth. But they have been transported, including their local church, to this other planet. And nobody knows exactly how they got there. And then there is a, a crew that beams down to the planet, old-fashioned Star Trek, you know, techno-babble why they can't use a shuttle. <laughs> and so it's all very, very simple uh, classic Star Trek trope. 
And they enter the church, and then they see stained glass windows. And then there is the like the center stained glass window, and there are lots of candles burning, which is always a bit like, okay, I understand that for visual reasons you want candles burning in this wooden church with no one supervising. <laughs> but in reality, that wouldn't be a very good idea. But anyway, they see the stained glass window, and in the center is an image of Christ. A, a, uh, Christ on the cross, Mary and and St. John standing next to the cross, so classic image. But then they are like, okay, are are do you have, are are you a believer? And then one of the one of the uh, team members, uh, the away team, says, well, no, I've been raised by non-believers. And then uh, uh, some of them, we don't know exactly about Pike, but they do seem to have at least the rudiments of of of, uh, of knowledge about faith. And then um, Michael, the the, the main. Uh, uh, heroine of the of the story, she points out, well, this is this is interesting. This this Saint Glass shows uh, Christianity, but then you also have the logos, like they show logo like, symbols of other religions in the same same Saint Glass window. So you have Islam and Judaism and uh, uh, what was it uh, uh, Shintoism and and Wicca. And so this this window represents that they've they've combined all these religions, and there is a story reason why they introduced that. But then I'm, I'm laughing out loud. I was like, okay. Dear Hollywood writers, I understand that you want to introduce religion, but first of all, Wicca is not one of the major religions on earth. Wicca, in case you haven't read the Wikipedia entry is an invention that dates back to the first half of the 20th century. This has never been a religion. There's never been a, a big movement that, like, like on the same level of Judaism and Christianity and Buddhism and whatnot. Well, Buddhism, Buddhism is not a religion either. But, but, but that is in scope and in size similar to Christianity. How dare you put like Wicca in there as if it was like a world religion? So. This is a big misunderstanding about Wicca, and, and um, I've, I've entered into a debate on, on the web several times in the past. A Wicca really is an invented, an invented. Uh, I wouldn't even call it a religion. It's a basically a kind of a new agey type of, uh, you know, let's, let's do mysterious things. <laughs> but it's very enlightening to read the, the Wikipedia entry about Wicca, um, because it's also uh, interesting to see how, <clears throat> so this, by the the people that I meet at sometimes on these fantasy fairs, they are convinced that Wicca is like very ancient, goes back to, it's back to the Middle Ages, and it's pagan witchcraft and has very old roots, what they don't realize. And so th- this is this happens a lot, and I'll talk about this also when we talk about Candlemath later on, where there's kind of a revisionist movement on the web and also in, infiltrating platforms like Wikipedia, they're really changing the perception of people and their knowledge about, you know, they're basically falsifying the facts about religion in the world and about in religion in world history. And so Wicca, and this is documented by historians, is made up, introduced in 1954 by Gerald Gardner, who was a retired British civil servant. Now, it does draw upon some ancient pagan uh, motives, and, and, and rituals, but it's all hodgepodge, like take a little bit of this and take a little bit of that. Um, and so the entire you know, Wicca following that exists doesn't, oftentimes doesn't realize that this is a very, very recent kind of, you know, constructed semi-religion and absolutely incomparable to Judaism, Islam, and, uh, and Christianity. The other big mistake in that whole portrayal of that stained glass window is that it shows in the center the most recognizable image for a, I would say, an American, North American audience, and that is the cross, you know, Jesus on the cross. So immediately it's like, stained glass windows, church, yeah, so it must be, uh, it must have stained glass windows, and then so a cross is probably what we all recognize. The thing is, um, first of all, the, the church looks like a, more like an evangelical or Protestant church, uh, so not definitely not a Catholic church. Um, and the, the stained glass window depicting Jesus on the cross, and then in the same stained glass window, um, symbols of Judaism and Islam, let's not forget about that, it is unthinkable 
that anyone who knows anything about Islam would depict um, a prophet like Jesus on in a, in its Christian narrative in, and be in the same stained glass window. There, there would be really no way in the world that that you could combine those two. Um, there's just too much of a of a of, of a different perception of of who Christ was. I mean. Jesus is mentioned, of course, in in uh, in Islam, but as a prophet, and certainly not someone who died on the cross and 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 resurrected on the third day, and and absolutely not the Son of God and equal to God and part of a, a Trinity. That for for uh, Muslims, that is a heresy and a very very uh, not not just a heresy, but something that should be. Combated and should, 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 nobody should think that. So, anyway, it's like okay, I understand that in Hollywood terms, looked like a good idea to put all those faiths in one nice stained glass window with Christ in the middle. Um, but no, <laughs> do your own work. So anyway, that's happens all the time. It's like like every single time a Catholic church features in any animated movie or in a Hollywood movie, what is what do we see? We say usually no altar. We see a priest, usually in a cassock, with a stole, and no chasuble. There, there's no altar. It's always about the preaching. Or so, so it's either a, a priest in completely wrong vestments, and they, they, they'll just pick nice colors. So they'll usually do either purple or red. You never see green, <laughs> which is the color that we use most during the liturgical year. It's either a priest. In, in wrong clothes, preaching, uh, which would be much more like a Protestant emphasis, I'd say. Or it's the confessional, where you see the priest in always in the wrong vestments, sitting in a confessional and hearing about mass murderers and <laughs> all sorts of creepy things, and then just making a sign of the cross, like that there's no formula, there's no absolution. It's just like, oh, my son, what have you done? Oh, you you murdered like all, your, the, all the competition of your local mob. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just make a sign of the cross and then we're we're done, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's it's not the purpose of course of Hollywood to to tell <laughs> to give us catechesis about about priests and about church. But if you are a Catholic and you know a little bit about your faith, then it's sometimes a bit ridiculous. It's like, come on. You know, we're 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 not going to we're we're not going into the streets to protest, but show a little bit of respect for the religions that you try to portray. Anyway, that's that's all that I want to say about those two. Now, to the main the main course of this uh, movie segment, and that is a movie that at least I, I would dare you to check out. It may not be your cup of tea, but believe take it from me i've studied movies i've i've in rome we 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 watch all the classic movies the italian ones and you know, the fellini ones the the big classic movies hitchcock etc and this movie can could have been one of those classic movies that we venerate from the from the 60s and the 70s um it's called roma but it's not about rome this is not an italian movie this is a story about a woman, or actually there are several women, but there's one focused on on a main uh, uh, character is a woman, uh, who is uh, a Mexican woman, works in Mexico as a servant in a rich family. Um, The entire movie is filmed in black and white. And that's not just a fancy little trick to stand out of the crowd. No, black and white here is used in its most glorious form. Um, it is filmed with such high-quality cinematography and also <clears throat> the grading of the movie. I wouldn't be surprised if this was filmed just on film. I'm not sure I didn't really uh, research it, but it looks identical to some of the greatest you know, black-and-white movies from the 60s. Um, the, 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 the power of black and white the way it's not just like you take away the colors that doesn't give you a good black and white movie no the moment you start thinking about how what do i sh- how what does this look like in black and white you start to play with light you choose your gradients your your contrasts and so this this movie is made with 
almost a know-how that I thought was long lost. It's something that when 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 filming in in color was too expensive or or unavailable to filmmakers, they would have to think: how, What does this look like in black? What can we do in black and white? And how can we make basically from something lacking color a strength? And it will help us focus, and we can play with light. And well, this movie does it in such a consistent and magnificent way that just the cinematography, the way the movie looks, is unbelievably powerful. And it's, it's something that I, I was sitting there, I was constantly telling myself, like, how can this be made just recently? This is impossible. This, we cannot make these movies nowadays. Um, the second thing that is unbelievable in this movie is the sound design. It's not probably something that, that a lot of people would notice uh, immediately, but the sound in this movie is playing a major role in creating atmosphere, in establishing the places where we are. You have sounds of the city, the crazy you know, Mexican bands that are in the streets, the sound of, of uh, people selling all sorts of toys, and this takes place in the... 60s also, I think. No, I think in the early 70s. So three years after I was born in 71. The story is in 71. And so you see life depicted as it was in those days. Um, and sound helps them establish a credible universe there because it sounds like it would have sounded in those days. Um, the movie is very slow at first. Like the opening scene is just water on tiles. And you watch that for five, six minutes <laughs> with just credits appearing. And it's the sound and it's this just this hypnotic like editing where you're just like constantly. So what's what am I looking at? What would be happening? Where's this water coming from? Where is this? You hear sounds and then all of a sudden you hear the sound of an airplane and you see in the reflection of the water, you see an airplane passing by. So you're like, huh? Well, it looks like this is on the like a courtyard of something. And where are we? The movie does this constantly, where the sound and and just a very s static image at first helps you to almost be there. Like the the almost all of the camera moves are the exact opposite of what is trendy right now. So you have no very quick cuts. You know, like they do a lot in action movies nowadays, like uh, scene one, scene two, scene one, scene two, action shot, close up, close up, uh, shaky camera. This is, this is the total opposite. This is, okay, I'm looking at the second floor of a, or the first floor um, of a house and I see a room and I see books and I see a bed and oh, there's a, uh, a television playing in the background. And then Almost imperceptibly, the camera is moving very, very slowly to the right, and then I see, oh, there's some, someone sitting there, and then, and then there's, there's a kid running from one room to the other. But the camera doesn't linger. The camera just very, very slowly just shows you the house, and you hear the sounds of this house, and and you hear even very subtle sounds of the street outside because the windows are open. So you gather, even though it's black and white, so it must be a summer day. And then, and, and nothing happens. There is no storytelling except for the movie helping you to be in that place. And then you get introduced to the people. And the camera is constantly serving the story of these people. And the way they recreate the, the, the Mexican city environment and later on also the, the, um, the outskirts and the, the, um, the countryside, um, later on the beach towards the end, it's totally 100% believable. The cars, the people in the street, and we're not talking about just close-ups and then a lot of green screen work. I, I assume that there has been a lot of CGI, but it's completely imperceptible. It's perfect. You totally believe the acting, not just of the main actors, but of the children, the children in this movie. It's like, this is real. The camera was just happened to be there. This is filmed in 1971, and what I see is real. That is how good the acting of these kids is. And when you say acting of the kids, I don't even think that the kids are acting. I think this is the genius 
of the director. Uh, this is, by the way, the same director who also directed the third Harry Potter movie, The Prisoner of Azkaban. It's the, I think he's Spanish. Let me look that up real quick. Um, the director, I think, has made it, uh, has has succeeded in directing the children in such a way that they feel they can just be children and they too believe that they are actually there that's how that's how natural they react you can't you can't you can't act that it is real it, these kids are just there uh alfonso uh, cuaron uh, is the director of of this uh, movie um he is for, actually he's not spanish he's from mexico city um and uh, some of the movies that he directed are among my favorite movies gravity uh with sandra bullock what an amazing movie that was children of man one of the most groundbreaking uh, science fiction movies uh dystopian future but done really really well uh y tu mama tambien that's a movie not for everyone uh, there's some graphic content but story-wise it's very powerful um Let's see what else did he do. Uh, Harry Potter. Where's the Harry Potter here in the list? I can't really see it. Oh, this is part of the. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so um, he. Uh, I think he got a nomination as well. Um, he already won two Oscars. Let me see. Yeah, he's been nominated here for best achievement in directing for this year's uh, uh, Academy Awards. Um, best Achievement in Cinematography, Best Motion Picture of the Year, and Best Original Screenplay, which also Quaron. So, oh, mind-blowing that one person can have four Oscar nominations. Um, he got an Oscar, b by the way, for directing uh, Gravity and also for film editing of Gravity. So, <laughs> and he was nominated also for mo Best Motion Picture of the Year in 2014. So, but it shows. This is one, I think, one of the best directors that we currently have. Um, and, but it's so, what, what I love about Roma is that it does something that no one else would dare to do. This is a movie that no one would put on, I think it's been in theaters, a very, very small release just for a few weeks. And then Netflix bought it and then it got 10 Oscar nominations. And now everyone is like, <gasps> Okay, we may have wanted to release this a bit bigger than, and instead of getting letting Netflix reap all the benefits of this. But anyway, what this is a movie unlike anything else that is currently or has been in the theaters for at least the last ten years. Um, the entire uh, world is 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 believable, and and you just wonder how they pulled it off. How can they do this? This because this world does not exist anymore. The story itself, that's the final thing I'm going to say about it, and then you should watch it yourself, is about this uh, girl at work, young woman works as a servant, um, in, and, 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 and it's just her little life. There's, there's, there's almost nothing really truly happening except for her personal story, but it is filmed so well that you care for her and you care for the people around her, and... Um, it's a drama. It's there is tragedy. There's humor. There is, there are moments that I was very emotional. There is something that broke my heart in the in the movie in the story. Um, there is, um, there is a, there's a beautiful thing happening it towards the end, which is heartwarming. And so this movie just gave me the entire spectrum of of um, of emotions, including one time that I was like, okay, I don't. I was not expecting full frontal male nudity in this movie. And there is full frontal male nudity at one point early on in the movie. So perhaps not something you should watch with your kids. But again, it is because this movie wants to be real. And it is something that happens in her life. It's not anything, you know, that wants to be sensual or anything. This is an important moment, something that happens uh, in, in our life and nothing extraordinary but it has major consequences on our life and it has a very important uh, consequence basically for, for the story that this movie tells about this, this, this uh, young woman so in that, in that aspect, I mean it's something you 
it's usually censored away and may even be censored away depending on where you live. Um, but on Netflix, it was just like, okay. Uh, it, so I was I was surprised, but I was not shocked in a sense that it is this is not done like Paul Verhoeven would do. Like Paul Paul Verhoeven, Dutch director, he loves to use nudity to shock his audience and to and and for the effect of shocking for to in order to break rules. Here, this was done because it wanted to emphasize the reality of the situation, the reality of the story that we're telling. We're, we're not watching a movie. We're watching life as it is from the perspective of this young woman. So I have much more respect for what uh, Quaron did here in this movie. Also, by the way, something he did in Itumama Tambien. There are also some scenes there that you wouldn't show your kids. But it tries to be real. And so it's a choice. I'm, I'm not sure that everyone should make choices like that, but... I can respect it because it serves the story. It serves the story the way this director wants to tell that story. So that's that's my only like warning, but don't be disparaged by that to go watch this because this movie I hope will win all the actor uh, all the Oscars that has been uh, uh, nominated for, including sound design by the way. Also got an Oscar nomination. This movie deserves, I think, to be the biggest winner of uh, this year's Academy Awards, even though there are a lot of other movies competing that I also love and also wish the best and enjoyed. But this movie is five classes above anything else that I've seen in the last 10 years. But again, it's not for everyone. Some people will like, what am I watching? Why am I watching this? But I think this is really on the level of the greatest Fellini movies, the greatest movies, the classic ones. And I never expected to see this on Netflix. What great times we live in. <laughs> Catholics rock! And with that, it is time for a very short visit to The Peculiar Bunch, where we talk about Candle Mass, and then we're going to wrap up because I'm out of time. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? February the 2nd is the Feast of Candle Mass in the Catholic Church, and it's a beautiful tradition that kind of formally ends Christmas time. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. I think Candle Mass is one of the most underrated uh, uh, Catholic feasts that we, that we know. It's celebrated on the 2nd of February, usually that's a weekday, and nobody shows up. <laughs> I'm lucky to have one of my parish churches that has a tradition of, of celebrating Candle Mass on the, on the evening itself with a candle procession, which is kind of one of the most memorable aspects of this feast. <coughs> I apologies. I've got a bit of a cold, so sometimes I have to clear my throat. Candle Mass is also known as the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord Jesus, or the Feast of the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, and it, the readings bring us back to that day that Jesus was presented at the temple. It's based on a story that we find in the second chapter of Luke, and that tells the story of what happens to Mary and Joseph. After 40 days, uh, when a child is born, in, in the, that culture, in those times, um, a woman was considered to be impure, for seven days, and then had to wait an additional 33 days before she could enter the temple to be purified, and that was done by a sacrifice, a sacrifice of, depending on how rich you were, what means you had, either uh, doves or bigger animals, and uh, probably also some money involved. Of course, now we would say, even theologically, Oh, why? Why? Well, why is a birth impure? Why? Why are women kind of victimized because they they brought a child into this world? We should be celebrating that like we do nowadays. But let's not forget that just you know before the Second Vatican Council and the liturgical reforms, this was also still part of the Catholic view and and in customs where you know uh, women would would 
would be brought to the church immediately, uh, or that the child would be brought into church to be baptized, and oftentimes the mother was not allowed to, to be at the baptism of her child. And there were some rituals and prayers involved for the purification, which, like, okay, that doesn't make sense. But anyway, this was part of the Jewish tradition back then. And of course, Mary and Joseph were faithful Jews, and by for that reason were uh, um, also following the law. That's what the story wants to emphasize. If you, by the way, your child was a girl, then it was not 40 days, it was 60 days. So that, but the story, the story is beautiful because this is the first time that Mary with her child enters the temple. And so it's the introduction, literally, of Jesus into the house of his father, the same temple where we will see him later on when he's 12 and he's lost for three days. Um, it's, it's such a symbolic moment. And that is celebrated with, uh, candles, a candle procession. This goes back to, um, the early days of the church. And here is the, what I talked about earlier on in this show about this revisionist trend on, uh, on websites where they try to devalue Christian and mostly Catholic liturgical celebrations by, um, establishing pagan roots. This, oh, this is just pagan. And they just, put some holy water over it and, and made it Catholic. But the Catholics didn't come up with that. No, this goes back to the the Roman feast of Lupercalia, which was a uh, feast of fertility and that would have fires and, 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 and uh, torches in the city. And then the Pope was like, huh, I don't like this. Let's, uh, let's turn this into a candle celebration for, for um, the Virgin Mary. There's another similar story that tries to um, uh, de- devalue uh, St. Valentine's Feast on the 14th of February, saying, well, that is, was supposed to replace Lupercalia. So you see that the Catholic Church is always kind of ignoring her own pagan roots. Well, that's revisionist. If you go to Wikipedia, I'm glad that we have Wikipedia and that we've got some historians also contributing to that page, you will see that that premise, that that theory, is much more unlikely than it seems. Because, yes, of course, the Roman pagans were... Have were there was this goddess of fertility, and there were, there are some stories, but very uh, um, likely that wasn't the case when this feast and and candle mass was introduced uh, back then in Rome. They didn't celebrate Lupercalia, so it's just beware. Uh, don't don't just Google you know candle mass origins and read any website that you'll find. Go to you know, trust, trust, uh, trustworthy sources. Wikipedia, of course, is not perfect, and there's also a lot of rubbish on Wikipedia, but at least it can be edited, and there are a lot of people involved, also Catholics, that know much more about this than those revisionist historians that are trying to dispel Christianity by showing that it's just basically paganism, um, refurbished paganism. Um, that doesn't do justice, I think, to the to the importance of this feast. So it's a, it's a feast day, it also ends, because for, for Mary, this was also the end of her, let's say, the time between the birth of, of her son and the, the, this moment of purification. So it marks for us also the, the official end of, 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 uh, of Christmas. Now, liturgically, we've already entered the, 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 the regular, the usual, the, what is it, the, the, the normal uh, liturgical year. But there is still this, this, this provision or this tradition that if you still, if you have some leftover Christian uh, Christmas decorations, you have to remove them on the 2nd of February. What I do in my parish is we go, we bless the candles, which is something that is, uh, there is a ritual in the in a missal for that. <clears throat> we have a small grotto dedicated to uh, uh, Mary of Lourdes. Um, and so we go there, that's where I bless the candles, and then in procession, in the dark, because this is outside, near the cemetery, we go, we walk in the church, and then we, we, we place the candles in front of the altar. It's a, it's a beautiful ceremony. It's very simple, but it's, it's growing in popularity. Um, and I understand why, because we, we sometimes just need to do something different, like ruffle the feathers, change the, the traditions. And um, I, I, I see this feast growing and growing, and I like it because it's still winter, it's still dark and cold, and so the symbolism of the, the light of these candles, symbolizing, of course, the light of Christ that is entering the temple. So instead of the temple, the, the place where you worship this faraway, invisible God that is still very loving and caring, but still nobody has ever seen God the Father. And then God himself 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, becomes a child that you can hold in your hands, and you've got these two old figures, this <clears throat> this uh, old lady and this old man, that are the symbols also of the Old Testament, and they carry this new life in their arms. It's beautiful how the 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 power, the rejuvenating power of the gospel, is put in the hands of this old of the of the the representatives of of Judaism and of of this Old Testament, this old covenant that God had with His people. So it's not like okay, we had this old stuff and now we're beginning something new in a different place. No, it's literally. The story tells how the new is born in the arms, it is, is put in the arms, in the nurturing arms, the caring arms of, of the previous generations. And so there's continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a beautiful feast. We can talk about it much, much more. But for me, it is time to wrap things up because I've got an appointment and I've been talking way too much about uh, the launch of our new Catholic channel and about... Uh, about Roma, but hey, you know me, when I'm enthusiastic about something, I can't stop talking about it. Hope you enjoyed it. There will be an after show with uh, more topics that I couldn't address in this episode of my show, but uh, that's for patrons only. So if you want to listen, go over to patreon.com slash Father Roderick. See you.